This morning we look at the triumphal entry with a question mark. I'll explain that later from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. Now after many years in the doldrums, uh, my team, Liverpool Football Club, brought home the trophy, the UEFA Cup, the European Champions Cup. It's been a, as a supporter, uh, living in Liverpool, I really couldn't support any other team, could I? I had to be Liverpool. And what could see uh, the, the, the team improving, they brought in a new coach, they, they bought some new players and slowly the, 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 the team had been winning more games and uh, momentum was building each season. It took them a while to get there. Now, sporting teams speak of momentum being something that is an essential part of a winning team. Momentum is when you score one goal after another. You win one game after another. Every play seems to come off. The players just have this sense. They know where their position, the passes come through. They understand each other. They work together in practice and at the game. There is a feeling of euphoria and expectation that they can, they're in this winning streak that nothing is going to stop them. And, and the, the really great teams, sporting teams, are able to carry this momentum just not from one game to the next, but from one season to the next. And you see that. Uh, if you follow rugby league, you would have known about the St. George of the 60s, for example. They won like 11 championships on the trot. That's what happens when you've got momentum. Now, momentum is what has been building up to this point as Jesus enters Jerusalem. There is fervour, there is excitement, and all of this has been building up for about three years now. And John tells us in verses 12 to 13, the next day the great crowd that had come for, for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches and went out to meet him shouting. They were shouting, they were excited. For three years, all around the countryside, Jesus went. Jesus performed one miracle after another. For three years, he has healed the sick. He has given sight to the blind. He restored the lives of the lepers so that they would be accepted once again in the community. For three years, Jesus has attracted one crowd after another. He taught them about the kingdom of God. It culminated in being able to raise Lazarus just a few days before from the dead in front of all of those witnesses. So we go to the end of our, of our reading in verses 17 to 18 and we read, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. 
in, in, in many ways, the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was the, the ultimate poke into the kingdom of darkness. This is what I'm here to do. This is what I'm able to do. This was the ultimate sign and wonder. And it was a precursor to his own resurrection from the dead as well. The word got around like wildfire. Just as the momentum was building up amongst the people, however, momentum was also gathering pace at the other end. His enemies were also becoming more resolute in doing something about this. This is getting us nowhere. We have to do something about this. But Jesus wasn't holding back. He was pushing forward. He wasn't retreating. He wasn't going to be hiding his, his, where he was or what he was doing. He wasn't going to slip away. He was coming to do what he had to do. Jerusalem was primed. It wasn't a casual visit. He wasn't concealing his identity. The polls were saying, we know how reliable the polls are. And you, you might have to be a bit, you might be a bit uh, older to recognise this uh, headline from the 60s. Jesus was more popular than the Beatles. Imagine that. He had now come deliberately to declare who he was. The King of Israel, the Anointed One, the Promised Messiah. The One who had been announced for centuries through the prophets. Here He was. So, let's unpack this whole episode a little bit more. First of all, let's look at under the headline, The King and His Kingdom. The King and His Kingdom. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they shouted. Blessed is the King of Israel. Now back in Genesis, when we did our series in Genesis, Jacob, a dying Jacob, had prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 to 11, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be, binding his foal unto a vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. The prophet Zechariah prophesied about this event 500 years before. The crowd cried out, Hosanna, which means... Yeah, means Hosanna means save us now, save us now. And after Jesus blessed the loaves and the fishes and he fed the thousands, the crowd was so impressed that they wanted to make him king there and then. And John 6.15 says, Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, by force, how can you make him king by force? You are going to be our king. He withdrew again to a mountain by himself. But this, the king that they wanted, 
wasn't the king that Jesus was. Jesus was the king that they needed. About a thousand years before, the people also came to Samuel and said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us and to go before us and fight our battles. Before Saul, God was their king. But they insisted on an earthly king. They could handle an earthly king, one who was more like them. A king who would not only sit upon the throne of David but to lead the battle against the hated occupation, the Romans, improve their lot in life, get their finances ahead. And by all appearances, Jesus was everything you could hope for in a leader. He was charismatic, he was decisive, he spoke with authority, he was powerful, he healed. That, that's his presentation. Then on top of that, look at what he did. He healed the wounded, he raised the dead. What army on the face of earth could stand against such a king? Their minds went back to the glory days of King David and then his son Solomon, to the glory days of the temple when the whole world knew who they were. But Jesus did not come to fulfil their patriotic ideals and he did not accept their nomination. It's interesting that uh, Mormons, the Mormons and many so-called evangelicals uh, teach that we are here, we are here to establish the kingdom of God on earth. And this is largely the premise behind the, you might have heard or not heard about the, the social justice movement, very popular today, it's, and it's gaining more momentum. You know, as much as we might try, the idea that somehow through our efforts Jesus would come and reign in our midst, that we prepare the ground for Jesus to come is it's just wrong. It's hubris. It's, it's pride. Yes, the church is an integral part of the kingdom of God here on earth. It is the community of the redeemed, those who have been forgiven from their sins through Christ. In Colossians 1.13 we read, For he, that's the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into what? Into the kingdom of the Son he loves. So when we become Christians, we come into a kingdom, the kingdom of the Son. If you are a believer in Christ, you are in the kingdom of God where Jesus is your king and my king. So we need to unpack a little bit more about what this kingdom means and it's a very big topic. It's a very big topic so let's just look at it a little bit more. What are some characteristics of this kingdom? Secondly, the second point is it is a kingdom with no boundaries. A kingdom with no boundaries. 
In verse 13 it says, Blessed is the King of Israel. Blessed is the King of Israel. Does that mean that he is just the King of Israel? Does that mean it's it's concentrated on one particular geographical location? The people who were cheering for Jesus were the the pilgrims. They were coming for the feast of the Passover. They were coming from all over the countryside and beyond. The locals, those who lived in Jerusalem, had very little idea. That's why they were asking what's going on. And the passage that follows, that we'll be looking at next week, actually tells us that some Greeks, that some Greeks, came from far beyond asking for Jesus. What is this a foretaste of? Well, read the book of Acts. How the gospel is to spread and go and go beyond. This was a foretaste of what was going to happen real soon with the, the boundaries of the church. Now, humans... Need fences to help us define what's mine, what's yours, and whether you are in or whether you are out. In a country like Australia, uh, according to what suburb you live, uh, you might have a front fence, you might have just a, a lawn. In, uh, in Paraguay, where I grew up, we had very little fences on the front, but as, as government change and society change, now the fences are like, you know, 20 foot high with broken glass on the top of it and dogs and security guards and everything to protect because people feel so insecure. People in the bush who own rural properties, they want to know where their fence, where their boundary is. Gold prospectors go and peg their lease before they start digging. What's yours? What's mine? Somehow we like boundaries, physical boundaries. The old physical Israel didn't just have defined boundaries. It also had Racial boundaries between Jew and Gentile. And if Jesus were to create a physical kingdom with earthly boundaries, these boundaries would have limited his kingdom. But the new Israel, the new Israel had no such boundaries. It was the people of God under the new covenant. However, this didn't stop people trying to go back to erecting physical fences. During the the Middle Ages, during the Middle Ages, there was a physical kingdom that lasted a thousand years and was known as the Holy Roman Empire. Arguably, Historians sort of argue back and forth of when it started and when it finished, but arguably it began when Charles the Great took the throne in 800 AD and ended a thousand years later when 
Napoleon brought it to its knees in 1806. The Holy Roman Empire covered much of Europe with Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, most of France, Poland and Italy. It was meant to be a physical kingdom of, for Christendom. This is Christian here. And he tried to put a fence around the church to protect it. There is this old theological discussion that's been going on for years between the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. What exactly is this? Is the church the kingdom? Is the church... What's the relationship? Now, mining companies sometimes set up after they find a ground that looks pretty good, they put a few drills and they find has it got gold, has it got copper, has it got silver, whatever it is, iron. Australia is a fairly big mining country. We export a lot of our a lot of that stuff that we dig up from the ground. And but before they, they go into full production and spend the millions and millions of dollars, they set up what is called a pilot plant. The stuff they dig up from the ground, they put it through this little a small-scale pilot plant to test the economics of the prospect before they go all out. In a way, in a way, the church is a pilot plant of the kingdom of God. The church is to be a new society in which the world can see how the family dynamics works, where people of all colours and races of all ages mingle together and get along. Uh, they, they have a different way of looking at things. And the way that they behave in the world is, is they are challenged in this, in this place called the church, in this pilot place. So where they go, they, they are equipped, they, they, they go as, as light in the middle of darkness and then they come back together, they get built and they get sent out again. And they don't just get sent out into a, a local community. Sometimes they could be sent out into many other parts of the world as God calls them. They have a new purpose. They have a new goal. They have new hope. They have a future. And they have a king. The kingship of Jesus Christ. The church is not only to model the healing of God's rule, but it is to tell others about it. It is ordering lives and relationships and institutions according to God's authority. Communities, countries, nations who have set up their constitutions and laws according to the principles in God's word, you see the difference with those who haven't. Those who have are progressing. They, they have a new, they have a, an understanding of, what, of the value of life. 
But as some of these countries that have built it in the past, as some of these laws are challenged, as they move further and further away from, from God, you can see that the blessing of God, God removes his blessings and we can see the results. A breakdown in society, breakdown in the family, the sanctity of life. One thing we do know for sure is that even though nations do need boundaries, the church doesn't need a fence around it. There is no need for walls to protect it. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church doesn't need protection as such because it is a force on the move. Jesus also declared, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. This means that you take the kingdom, you take this kingdom wherever you go. And no worldly kingdom can stand against it. This means that the kingdom is here, but the kingdom, if one of us gets locked up and spends the next 10 years in prison, the kingdom of God is there. In other words, the church is built upon the foundation, the power of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus is to be a vibrant force with the power to overwhelm the gates of hell, an army so powerful that it is able to take on Satan and hell itself. Jesus didn't save us to be on the defensive and to hide behind walls. There is no kingdom in the universe that can stand against the kingdom of God because Christ's kingdom is not limited. It's not limited by physical boundaries. Thirdly, just in case you get confused about language of uh, taking on the power of hell, not being on the offensive and not defensive, we need to recognise that it is a kingdom of peace. It is a kingdom of peace. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. One of the things about physical kingdom is that, they need, is that they need soldiers to carry out its objectives. This is either to conquer new territory or to defend and maintain that which is already theirs. And they do this through fear, through terror, through the power that is exerted and, and maintained and any uprising is quickly, very quickly dealt with. Uh, interesting that I think we've just celebrated the 20 years of the Tiananmen Square uh, upheaval and how very quickly that was dealt with. That's what happens. Now, during his trial, Jesus told Pilate in John 18:36, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. So it is in this world, but it is not of this world, isn't it? Now, four generations before Jesus lived, four generations, there was a good man named Judah Maccabee. He was upset by the occupying forces of the Syrians who trashed the the city, the temple. So he rallied an army of Jewish men and fought the Syrians. And after beating them in 163 BC, he entered Jerusalem riding on a big stallion. The people waved palm branches and cheered. Guess what they cheered? They cheered, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Judah, Judah Maccabee was their hero. Many, in fact, thought that he was the Jewish Messiah. And when they entered the city, they cleaned out the temple, burned incense, offered sacrifices, and and, and they lit this huge menorah. Uh, You know what the menorah is like, the lights? For eight days. And to this day, the Jews celebrate eight days of the Festival of Lights, which is also called Hanukkah, Hanukkah, to celebrate his accomplishment. Unfortunately, soon after this whole fanfare, Judah was killed in a battle. So that was the end of that. However, they still continue to celebrate uh, Hanukkah. So when Jesus, when Jesus entered the city, the people could make the, 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 the connection between what happened with Judah Maccabee and what was going on with Jesus. So that was their, part of their immediate history. But this was going to be different. Instead of riding on a big stallion, Jesus rides on a donkey. you want an impressive military vehicle, you want a big white horse. That's impressive. Right? You see the generals, you know, the pose, you see the paintings, you go through the art gallery and there's little Napoleon on this huge horse, right? Um, That's the type of image we have. Uh, And here is here is Jesus on a donkey. If a white horse is a big horse, is more like an impressive military vehicle. A donkey is like your humble tractor. Right? Not a lot of speed, but a lot of torque. Jesus chose a donkey because his kingdom is not about force and coercion. Now, there are times when we're tempted to treat his kingdom in exactly this way. Especially when we see a lot of evil around us and we struggle to find righteous leadership at different levels of government. When there is so much red tape and everything just gets swallowed up and we we can't seem to be able to do anything and, and now we have to... Yeah, let's push. 
But the kingdom of God is not about force and coercion and fear and terror. It is about the proclamation of the greatest news that man will ever hear, the news of the gospel. And as people respond, they change. One life at a time. One life at a time. Now the mystery of the kingdom, the mystery of the kingdom, verse 16. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. There's a lot of things that the disciples didn't understand. Just like you and me, we don't understand what's going on, why God is doing what he's doing, why are we having setbacks, why is things so difficult. But it's a few years from now, we're going to look back and say, 30 years ago, that's why things are so hard, because God was actually doing something. But you should have been there. Everybody was depressed. They didn't have any hope. Look at the church now. And, 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 and if, if we are able to see the future, then we can sort of be encouraged and all this. But I'm saying, well, but the future is in God's hands. That's the whole point. We don't understand. I don't understand. You don't understand. There's a lot of things we don't understand. But that's the point of having Jesus as king, isn't it? You don't have to know everything. There's a mystery behind the way that God does things. Your job and my job is to trust him. The disciples didn't understand what was going on. What didn't they understand? Firstly, although it had all the outward appearances of this triumphal entry, the crowds were cheering, Jesus, Jesus. Triumphalism was not in Jesus' thoughts. He was coming as a king, not to receive a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He was, I wasn't there, but I'm, I'm, I'm putting things together. He was there in tears to pronounce judgment, to pronounce a sentence of judgment upon the nation. Where do I get this from? In Luke's Gospel we read, And when he drew near and saw the city, what did he do? He wept over it. He wept. When he came over the brow of a mountain, and, and I've, I've been there, you, you come over this hill and there it is, Jerusalem in all its glory. It's an amazing sight. It's, 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 it's overwhelming how beautiful it is. And yet, Jesus was overwhelmed. He teared up. Rather than rejoicing in the acclamation of the multitude, he could see what was going to happen to the city in just a few years' time. He could see the Romans 
sieging the city, the, the, the people so hungry, killing each other inside the walls because, this, because of the destruction that was about to come and Jesus could see the whole thing. And he was overwhelmed and simply said, how many times I tried to gather you, to, to gather you. I have loved you so much. I have sent you one servant after another after another and you killed the McDonald's. How many warnings do you want? He was weeping for the nation. He was weeping for the families. He was weeping for the individuals who would reject him. How quickly public opinion can change as well. At one moment, crowds are cheering to having made king. At the end of the week, just a few days later, the crowds would be demanding that he be crucified. We love the crowds, don't we? But don't get carried away by the crowds. Don't get carried away by the crowds. Let me tell you another story. After the war, uh, Clive uh, Winston Churchill, Clive Churchill was a footy player, Winston Churchill um, was visiting the US in 1952 and uh, a woman asked him, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech that the hall is packed to overflowing? And Churchill responded, it is quite flattering but whenever I feel this way, I always remember that if, if instead of making a political speech I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. He should know. He should know. Because soon after leading Britain to the most unlikeliest, leading Britain through the darkest periods, when Hitler was sending all the planes and... and Britain was being bombed from pillar to post and in Britain, the great battle of Britain, Britain was on fire, the hope was down. There was one man who stood up and said, we will not surrender. We will fight them in the beaches. He kept their spirits going and going and going. And you'd think that the people would, would just love this guy to death. But guess what? Soon after victory... And the crowds are cheering as the troops come in and the party just party after the victory of the, the Allies through the streets of London. 1945, that same year, that same year, there was an election in Great Britain. And Clive Church, Clive Church, Winston, Winston Churchill was defeated in an election that same year. You do get excited by the crowds. Be very careful. Be very careful. I recognise myself in that fickle crowd. I, I was struggling to follow my club Liverpool when they were losing. 
Now that they won, I love being part of the winner's circle. I could even crow before, uh, before Dylan. Dylan followed Barcelona and so Liverpool beat Barcelona in the semi-finals and I was just saying, see Dylan, we beat you guys. Oh, I don't want to talk about it. But when they start losing, and sure enough, sure as eggs, it's going to happen. When they start losing, I'm, I'm ready to move on. I love following Jesus when he is doing the impossible. But I slink away when things aren't going my way. I fall back when he expects me to do something difficult. It's exciting to follow Jesus when you're winning but when he begins to talk about suffering and sacrifice and death I hesitate. Let me ask you are you a fair weather follower of Jesus? Do you just follow Jesus when he's winning? Oh, he's always winning but when you feel that The crowd is cheering, everybody's following, when it's popular to follow Jesus. What about when it's not so? There are dark days ahead, I can guarantee you that. Don't follow the crowds. Don't follow the crowds. Secondly, something else they didn't understand is the nature of servanthood. Jesus' disciples struggled to understand the idea of God's kingdom as described by Jesus. For them, God's kingdom was Israel. For them, it's about boundaries, it's about racial purity and so on and so forth. And I'm not sure that 2,000 years later, his followers are any better at understanding what the kingdom of God is really all about. I hear a lot of triumphalism out there. I hear the leadership conferences and the thousands that go to this conference and the thousands that go to the other conference and, the, and this and that and the excitement and, and, it's, and it goes on and on. And the big churches and in Africa and the US. and Is that the kingdom of God? James and John came to Jesus asking for a special favour. They said, uh, let one of us sit at your right hand, that would be nice, wouldn't it? And the other on your, on your left, in your glory. That's it. Thank you, Jesus. Didn't he say, whatever you ask in my name, it will be done? These ambitious boys wanted influence. Power, authority, position by getting in early before the others. James and John. James would become the first martyr very early in the book of Acts. He's put to the sword. John, however, lives to the other end and writes this beautiful gospel. The kingdom of God isn't about authority and position. 
It's about ministry. It's about servanthood. I, um, that was a post that I liked. Um, it's, isn't it interesting that there are so many leadership conferences but there aren't any conferences about servanthood? I wonder where that is. Correct. Because serving, servanthood, it just doesn't sound... Yeah, sacrificial. These boys wanted influence and power. But the kingdom of God is not an authority position. It's about servanthood. And Jesus told them that his kingdom was very different from others. And this is what he said to them. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. The one who rules like the one who serves. I'm among you as one who serves. You see, Jesus came to give glory to the Father and he did it by serving obediently by serving all the way to the cross. He came to seek and save the lost. And that is the mindset that he wants. He wants built into his kingdom. He created the church. He built the church to be his flock of sheep, to follow him. There is no place in the church for people who want control, who want authority. The church is designed to be a place where everyone serves everyone else and ultimately we're all serving him. That's teamwork that honours God. And whether in the eyes of others we are winning, we are losing, in the end we have to do whatever calls us to do. Jesus wants to establish his kingdom where his servants build each other up, are a witness of the world in good times and bad times. Church is not about me. It's not even about you. It's about Jesus and the glory due to his name. The mission he has given us. The purpose. It's about knowing that with his power, not even the gates of hell will prevail. That is the kingdom of God. Amen.